salams and welcome. You're listening to the Sacred Footsteps podcast. Sacred Footsteps is an online publication and podcast devoted to alternative and spiritual travel, history and culture from a Muslim perspective. Join us while we talk to writers, historians, artists, as well as a whole host of other people about travel as a spiritual practice. Assalamu alaikum. This is Muaz Amir. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, I speak to Salahuddin Mazhari. Salahuddin is a producer at a global broadcaster, his dearest passion. So far, he has traveled to almost 60 countries. He's also very keen to visit North Korea one day. Salahuddin tells us about the Caucasus region, his relationship to it and its history, as well as its significant people, culture and their relationship to Islam. He tells us about his trip to the region that he had planned for a very long time and about his experiences. As always, we really welcome any feedback. So if you're a regular listener, we would love to hear your thoughts about any previous topics we've done or anything you'd like to hear in the future. So if you're on Twitter, reach out to our handle SFootsteps. Well, Salahuddin, or me, is a multicultural individual uh, of a mixed cultural background. So I am half Pakistani slash Indian on my father's side. And then on my mother's side, I'm Syrian. Um, But I was born in one of the world's sort of most multicultural cities, London. So I grew up being immersed in many different cultures. And a lot of my family, I have relatives from all over the world, from Colombia, from Brazil, from Jamaica, from Morocco, from Bangladesh, from uh, Kurdish relatives, Malay relatives, you name it. We've got every, Kenyans, Indonesians, Yemenis. So we grew up in literally a UN of families where, you know, look, you go to a family gathering, it's like the Tower of Babel. Everyone's blabbering <laughs> away in different languages. So that that's sort of started my love of traveling because I wanted to, because I had a snapshot of all these different cultures in sort of London and um, within my own family. So I was always curious to go to visit those places where a lot of my cousins would come from. And then also my fa- my late father, mashallah, he worked I- at British Airways. So from a very young age, he was able to, from when he was about 20 onwards, he was able to travel to about 100 countries in his life. Oh, subhanAllah. And I think that's where, as a family, we got the travel bug. And that's where we got our love of different cultures and just being around different sort of people. Right. So, I mean, from our guests, I think you're one of, mashallah, the most well-traveled. I think uh, roughly 60 countries, you said? Yeah, roughly. Roughly 60 countries. And in most cases, some, sometimes we, we do sp- <coughs> we interact with a lot of the cultures that we travel to. Um, let's talk about the, um, the Caucasus region in specific, because, I mean... What what first of all tell our listeners what exactly are the Caucasus and and um, how did your love and interest to travel there come you know come about? Right. So what are the Caucasus? So the Caucasus are a mountain range between um, Europe and Asia. So it's one of the other dividing lines apart from the Bosphorus, the Ural Mountains, and it's on the borders of like northern northern Turkey, Georgia, to what is now the Russian Federation. Um, and what's really interesting about this region, historically, it's known as one of the most multicultural regions in the world. So when the Romans in at, and times of antiquity would trade there, because it was so culturally diverse, they had to employ 134 different language interpreters. Um, 
and Dagestan just on its on its own has like 30 to 40 different ethnic groups all clustered and they all come from like 12 to 15 different language families so the cultural diversity is probably one of the biggest attraction points but for me personally it was more the strength of character mm-hmm. that I found about the people of the Caucasus because my mother being from Syria um and historically when a lot of um after 1864 when a lot of sort of um Caucasus people were killed during the Russian wars of conquest, a lot of them escaped during the Ottoman end days of the Ottoman Empire to serve in a lot of Ottoman armies. So there's like very strong diaspora communities in the Middle East and Syria and Jordan and Palestine. And then also when I was a child, a lot of Chechens and Dagestanis would come and study in a lot of the Islamic and, uh, and Arabic institutions of Damascus. So I interacted with them quite early on as a child from when I was about eight or eight or nine, I would say. Now I'm 28. So I've known and one thing which really strikes you about Chechens and Dagestanis is how physically strong and built that they are. They're mm. like tanks, mashallah. mashallah. And then also, also one thing which is really amazing about them is the adab, the, the etiquette that they have towards elders. Um, especially when my father would walk in the room, they would all stand up. They would all greet him like one by one and they'd treat him with utmost respect and reverence. And two, the way their chivalry towards women and the way that they would like, like any woman that they know is being harmed in society, if they saw it at their Quran school, they'd always be the first to stand up and make an example out of anybody who would uh, sort of, um, what's the word, sully the honor of a woman in their, whether it's in their family, and even if it's a woman who is not is from an enemy tribe, for example, like the levels of haya that they have, like especially when my mom would walk in the room or my sister would walk in the room you'd immediately notice that these people are different. They combine like this beautiful physical, this physicality, this raw physicality with adab. And I think that's what strikes you about them. And so that's what sort of got you very interested in this culture and in this part of the world. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like it sounds like such a charming culture, but I, I, I don't think I know so much about like them in terms of their, you know, their, their contribution to the legacy of the of the ummah, and, yes. and I mean, what what significant things happened in that part of the world where I can probably, you know, recount the history of Islam in um, other parts of the world, like maybe you know Egypt or um, the the subcontinent. So, I mean, can you tell us a little mm. bit more about the history of of the region? I, I know you touched a bit on the Romans, and then you spoke about um, you know the, the the diaspora that came into places like Syria. But you know, tell us about Islam in the region and um, the the right. developments of relate relations of Islam and the wider world from the Caucasus and you know up till the twentieth century. Yeah. So Islam came in waves to the Caucasus. One wave was in was after the Prophet Sallallahu within twenty years. I don't know the exact date, but um, there was a conquest of um, south, what is now southern Dagestan, northern Azerbaijan, the sort of lesser Caucasus. So Arab armies, like Islamic armies, they conquered, they secured a foothold in the Caucasus, but they didn't go beyond. They stayed within the sort of like urban centers, and they perhaps only sort of like converted the elites of that area or the trading groups. Um, so it hadn't made sort of like Islam hadn't gained mass acceptance, but it had a presence in the region. But when Islam really starts to play a role, if 15, between like the 15th and 16th century, the people of the Caucasus, especially in Chechnya and Dagestan, start converting to Islam. Right. But at this time, it's still, it's still very much that Islam is very influenced by sort of like local customs and ancient rituals from like various 
from ancient pagan religions. But where Islam really starts to become a driving societal force was when the Russians, because of course the Russians have tried to invade the Caucasus on other occasions, but where they did it in earnest was during the 1700s, the mid 1700s, the late 1700s. That's when the and this is where the Nakhchivandis come in. So the Nakhchivandis were a crucial force. So the Nakhchivandi Sufi movement under Sheikh Mansur, who was the first sort of Imam of the Caucasus, as it were, mm-hmm. he played a cru- he played a massive role in, spread- in spreading Islam. And one thing he started sort of like uh, banning social vices such as tobacco. He also started ba- like banning a lot of sort of um, harmful cultural and feudal practices. Also, a lot of he reformed a lot of these laws called adat laws, which were customary laws used to dispense justice. So. He he was really important. Um, so it sounds like really I mean to about- me it sounds like I mean this region is very um, like I sort of almost think about um, you know like uh, this Highlander culture where clan clanship is very important and clan ties are so so important and your yeah. tribe your tribal is it is it something like that like your tribe is your life and you have yes. to live by your tribe's laws and um, you know it's it's yes yeah. yes yes. Yes, and before I go to that, I will come on to that in a second. But what I wanted to say is that um, because of the sort of sheer cultural diversity of the Caucasus, a lot of those sort of tribes were very fractious and prone to infighting. They didn't really have a common code which would galvanize their resistance against Russia. So Islam came to be that driving force through those charismatic Sufis oh, who came and not... Yeah, so like... Islam became because they were looking for something. What can we find in common that we have, where we can resist the Russians? And of course, because a lot of those people for the last in the 1700s, for the last 100, 150 years, 200 years, they'd been sort of nominally Muslim, but not perhaps so committed in an orthodox way. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing which deepened their commitment to Islam by using it as a rallying banner. And going to your question about tribes, yes, there is this thing in a lot of um, Caucasus culture where, um, at least I know in Chechen culture, where if you transgress against one tribe, your your tribal clan is held collectively responsible, and that plays in blood feuds. So it sounds really volatile. So, well, would, it can be volatile, but what's really interesting, this is where chivalry comes in again. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, let's say a one man kills another man from a neighboring Tukum or type, which is like clan or tribe. You know, the ma- all the males are liable. To, you know, you are liable to get to be revenged upon. Like for example, all the men to like young men can can be killed in that particular tribe. But what's really interesting is women, children, and elderly are excluded from blood feuds, so you can't take out your revenge on them. Right. But what's really interesting, what's really interesting is that now um, a lot of the governments in the Caucasus, a lot of the ulama are pushing, are creating all these reconciliation committees where they get people to forgive each other and everything. So there's a big government drive to do that in many of the Caucasus republics, at least definitely in Chechnya and Ingushetia. Right. So, I mean, I I hear about, um, you know, all this like dis, disunity, but it what it what it does is you require like perhaps a figure of a strong powerful personality a, a dynamic um, character yes. that that really reunites um the diverse people of these regions and i think of course mashallah the one 
figure who comes to mind and i think this is somebody who like muslims should know about so so well because he's such an inspiring figure like akin to perhaps even Salahuddin al-Ayyubi is um, Imam Imam yeah. Shamil and i mean when i heard yeah. about his his life i mean i could i could he- i could go on listening to um, about it because it's just so incredible and he's such an incredible yeah. example of um, you know chivalry in islam and you know can you can you tell yeah. our listeners about his life and and you know who he was and what his significance was definitely yeah. so imam shamil was the third imam of the the imamate of the Caucasus. um so it was sheikh mansur then it was either hamzat beg or ghazi mullah and then it was imam shamil so Imam Shamil was one of the most prolific sort of figures of resistance against Russian imperial rule and he led resistance against Russia for 25 years and if you've been to the really harsh mountain environments of Chechnya and Dagestan and you understand how much of an achievement that is to get all these sort of like warring tribes together and meld them into one sort of coherent unit against Russia and to survive in that really brutal environment this is massive achievement um i think what really made imam sham special he had that combination which was able to win him fame and charisma and respect so he was he had the stature of like he was almost 2 meters in height he was incredibly athletic so there was a story where he was escaping from the I mean the I heard that he wasn't always this um you know this this semi this way, semi legendary exactly. you know towering figure of strength and I mean how how did yeah. he how did he sort of transform himself into this Okay so there was an episode in which because he was very religiously knowledgeable mm-hmm. and a lot of his fellow sort of like students in madrasa were very or the local boys were very jealous of his um, intellectual prowess right. so what they did when he was a young man they all ganged up on him and they stabbed him mm-hmm. and they left him for dead and in that culture if somebody transgressed against you it was considered a shame for you to go and tell your parents right. so i guess that already shows a strength of character so no he didn't go like running with his he didn't go running to his parents so he went and he hid in the forest mm-hmm. and he recovered himself by using like the local mountain knowledge of herbs but then he also kind of this is where he starts to physically transform himself so he goes on like this massive sort of physical regimen where he strengthens himself to such an extent where he would sort of like put a bullet in his mouth and he would run for miles and if that bullet you know like um dislodged itself from his mouth because he got out of breath that was sort of like considered a sign of weakness and yeah so and then he got so strong that he could outrun outswim outride anybody so you know he could he was known for his equestrian acrobatics so in the middle of like jumping a small cliff face from one side to the other he could like he could jump go under his horse and kind of flip himself back on the other side of the horse and there's an episode where he's escaping from the russians and this is in russian military archives no less so this is all mm-hmm. this is true so they witnessed him jumping a few meters over a line a column of russian soldiers and sort of like this and even when he was in that same escape he was able to, with his knife he was able to slash through an entire russian soldier right to the saddle oh, subhanallah like, so he was known for his like sounds like a superhero 
He is a bit of a like you have Captain America. Is... He's sort of like you know um, <laughs> Captain uh, Caucasus. He is Captain Caucasus. What stands out to me about him, though, the most is apart from his physical prowess. What really strikes me is his, um, you know, his chivalry on the battlefield and the way he de- dealt with his enemies with such, um, you know, compassion and honor, almost like, um, actually, he was a contemporary of um, Amir Abdul Qadir al-Jazairi as well from, from Algeria. And I mean, yes. in their jihad movements, you can you can almost see like parallels with how well they're Definitely. treating their oppressors and how, you know... Um, Honor, honorably they're treating their oppressors to the point where the oppressors are even like praising them definitely so i think that's what's what's really interesting about amir abdul qadir and imam shamil so in about they say in the late 1820s 1828 they met and they were in on on hajj or umrah and they were sort of discussing uh, military tactics and guerrilla warfare tactics against their respective colonizers and then obviously after they both surrendered um they met in uh, they met again in Mecca and Medina. Uh, I think what's really interesting and to kind of talk about both their chivalry, it's really interesting to note that both there's similarities. Both were Sufis. Both were incredibly respected and feted in terms of rewards, like you know, like the highest medals and achievements by their right. colonizers once they cap once they captured them both. And what's really interesting is what when Imam Shamil was captured, like crowds of people when he was taken through the capital of georgia like tbilisi crowds of people turned up to see him then when he was in saint petersburg the Tsar himself came and he kissed his hands and he kissed his feet and he kissed his beard and what's really interesting that he made sure that imam shaman when he lived in exile he was treated very extremely well he was he was treated um, like an honored guest really because the, he had, and even um, Queen Victoria was aware of uh, Imam Sham, because, you know, the British were very worried about the Russian encroachment through the Caucasus, because then it would threaten India. Um, so he even appealed to her for help, which is really interesting. And the Times wrote about him that he was the greatest chieftain ever to have lived. So I would go as far as saying that uh, Imam Shamil was Queen Victoria's favorite jihadist. <laughs> That's hilarious, but yeah, no, I mean, I yeah. he was he was so um, you know honored in his lifetime because of you know deeds like, for example, capturing prisoners of war and then um, releasing them yeah. um, under under fair conditions and not not harming them to Definitely. the point where I mean, um, I, I I also heard that when he then finally did go on his Hajj, um, the people honored him so much that they you know they allowed him to stand uh, atop of the Kaaba just so that you know the the, the visitors yes. there could um, and I mean that that tells you so much about um, you know the, the honor that our deen gives to um, acts of chivalry and acts of you know you know fairness in war and stuff and but I mean Definitely. what what what's really remarkable though and um, and mashallah he's also buried in Jalatul Baki so you know mashallah he had he had a great yes. end but what's really remarkable mashallah. about about the region is that he is not um like an anathem like he's not a one one of a one of a kind character like i mean if he was if he was the only one that would be enough but i mean i heard that there were other characters and, and other other legendary figures from from the Caucasus yes. um around the same Definitely. time as him. So, I mean, I, I think I heard something about there being um, a commander who was, I mean, it, it sounds almost too good to be true. Like it sounds like something out of a Hollywood film um, or, you know, like a medieval TV show, but like there was, there was a, a one legged 
uh, horse riding commander who was also, yes. I think, uh, yes. can yes. you tell us a bit about him? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned him, Baisangur. Baisangur. So Baisangur was one of the Chechen Naibs or the commanders of Imam Shami. So he was the one who recruited a lot of uh, Chechens on behalf of Imam Shamil. And what's really interesting about him, so there is a mountain village or Aul in the local language called Gunib in Dagestan, which I visited, uh, where Imam Shamil surrendered. And when Imam Shamil surrendered in 1859, Baisangur and other other sort of Naibs who refused to surrender, they continued fighting. They escaped that particular village and they continued fighting till February 1861. And I'll tell you a really beautiful story about (laughs) him. He was so determined to fight the Russians. He had his, you know, you know like he, in battle, he had his foot. I think he'd lost his leg. He'd lost his arms. He'd lost his eyes. So he's one-eyed. And to the extent that he wasn't really physically capable of continuing the fight, but he forced his murids, he forced his kind of like followers to tie him to the horse, to tie him to the saddle by rope or whatever means so he could continue to fight from his horse. And what's really amazing about Baisangur is when the Russians, I think it was February or March 1861, when they hanged him, when they mm-hmm. hung him. So what the Russians tried to do to stir up ethnic tensions between the Chechens and Dagestanis, they uh, they sort of tried to force a Dagestani to kick the stool in which uh, Baisangur was standing, like before he was hung. And Baisangur, because he knew the sort of symbolic implication of this, he kicked his own stool and he, he died his on his own terms whilst preserving the sort of ethnic unity of the of the region. So the sort of the symbolic um, significance of what would have happened was that um, if, 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 if the stool was kicked, it would like sort of ignite us like a civil war um, amongst amongst tribes because of um, because of his death. And so he yes. he sort of forced, you know, he had the foresight to you know, to predict that, and it's one of the like it's yeah. it, it just it tells you that these people they weren't fighting this, you know, nihilistic, um, cold-blooded war. They really wanted an end to conflict, but they were they were out yeah. there to defend their people. And even if that meant that yeah. um, they lose their own life, if it meant that that there wasn't uh, if, if there was an end to the bloodshed, I mean, it it almost reminds me of you know, Subhanallah. If I if I can say like um, the the characters of like um, say Nauthman um, radiallahu anhu who who refused to, to you know to to lift to, to lift a sword against um, any of the any of the men who had who had come to kill him or or even of um, uh, Imam al Hassan who yeah. um, who you know who surrendered the, the Khilafah because he didn't want any more bloodshed and I think that's really important when you come to Imam Shamil because some people unfortunately do criticize Imam Shamil for surrendering and I think the Russians had. Because, you know, on that last battle, he had a lot of women and children with him. Mm-hmm. And the Russians would have, you know, if you look at Russian imperial Soviet history, they're capable of phenomenal brutalities and being dishonored and whatever. Uh, so for Imam Shamil, he surrendered because he realized the futility to continue to resist Russia. But he did it in a way that the Russians promised that, of course, they break those promises later, but... They promised that they wouldn't interfere in how Islam was taught. So he won some really key concessions as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was there to preserve human life. Right. And when he, when he realized, and I think that's what's the problem with a lot of groups today, perhaps, is sometimes they continue fighting, even if they realize that the costs are 
unacceptably I high. I mean, his two main concerns were A, preserving life, and then B, preserving Islam. And I mean, uh, apart from yes. that, he was ready to, to surrender anything else. Yes, yes, yes. So I think, I, think, I think that's really important, to know when to fight and to win the respect of your enemy, but also know when to stop, when to surrender, perhaps. And I think, uh, and I think that's a really interesting and important lesson. And um, let's talk, we, we, you mentioned something about um, teaching Islam. Let's talk a bit about how Islam was practiced um, uniquely uh, during this time. I mean, I, um, so for those who may not know, Salahuddin did a takeover for our Sacred Footsteps Instagram page. And he did um, show a very unique um, occasion uh, that is that the region is famous for and that's the uh, Chechen style dhikr gathering when he was you can watch this on our page and um, we're, we're just going to like link this in our show notes but for those who haven't ever witnessed a Chechen dhikr like it's it's something that's very um, it's unique and it's a bit it can be a bit surprising to say the least to, to, to some people as, as to you know what exactly is going on here you know there's a lot of stamping and a lot of running and and um, like you know, deep, 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 deep breaths, and you know, can you can you tell us about the genesis of this 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 type of dhikr and what yeah. its significance was? And yeah, so like after 1864, so we have when all the sort of like resistance against Russia has quietened down and the people are tired of resisting, comes a sheikh called Kunta Haji, and Kunta Haji is um, one of the Qadri shiuch, and right. he is. He gains a following amongst the Chechens because he preaches sort of like passive, pacifist acceptance of Russian rule. So the Chechens by this time, they're exhausted of having resisted the Russians for such a long time. So they accept his message. And even the Russian authorities, they're okay with kind of like initially of the of the kind of loud dhikr and everything. But then in any case, because they see that Kunta Haji is having such, he's developed, developing such a great following amongst the Chechen people, and they feared that down the line that that particular powerful stirring vicar is going to become like a rallying cry for resistance efforts against Russia. And they so then they started suppressing it. Right. So there's one particular there's one particular episode when uh, Kunta Haji is, is arrested by Russian authorities. Right. In 1864 and 3000 Chechens turn up. And they're forbidden from entering the fort because they're demanding his release. So then they start performing their dhikr, 3,000 of them, outside of that fort to demand Kunta Haji's release. And obviously the Russians killed like one or 200 people. And since that particular episode, that dhikr, instead of being sort of like a symbol of what was sort of pacifist acceptance of Russian rule, many times became the very opposite because the Russians it became like a self-fulfilling prophecy. The Russians right. <laughs> constructed their own very worst fears. And um, it became like a sort of rallying cry for Chechen nationalism. And it's been used on three or four occasions, especially. So when they were resisting Soviet rule... By right, because I think the Soviets of- were trying to like stamp down on, on, re- on religious yeah, practices indeed. entirely. So yes. they, they, were, they were trying to like spy on dhikr gatherings and, and that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, there's all sorts. But what's really interesting... Those efforts, and you know, the, 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 if you performed the, the dhikr, you'd be you, you'd be under the pain of deportation. Oh, subhanallah! Deportation, and, and a lot of mosques were closed, but people would just still gather and do it anyway. So, if anything, the Russian sort of repressive measures they actually enlarged it. They actually made it popular to the extent by the end of World War One, mm-hmm. most Chechens were Qadiris, basically. Oh, subhanallah! And um, yeah, 
And you know when Stalin in 1944 deported basically the entire Chechen and English population, 500,000 people to sort of um, gulags in um, Kazakhstan and in Siberia and Kyrgyzstan. During that time, the Tariqas became extremely strong because they were, they, despite the repression, despite the closure of mosques, they were very active in sort of like um, publishing religious literature, doing the dhikrs, teaching Islam. So if anything, I think that that particular zikr, what's really interesting right. is that the repression actually made it a symbol of Chechen nationalism or sort of defiance against Russian authority. And you'll see like in the first Chechen war, after the breakup of the Soviet Union, that zikr became what well, that zikr became a sort of rallying cry for resistance. And the Russians used to be terrified just watching it. It, it looks like almost like like a war cry, like, I mean, um, or like, you know, yeah, an army on the march or something like that, which is, you know, really, um, I suppose you could say culturally, you know, uh, fitting to, 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 to the people of this region. Definitely. When you see these, like, when you were in that, when I was in that room, you were like these big guys was like built like tanks, six foot, and they're stamping on the floor as if it, it feels like you're in an earthquake and you feel really moved. It, it's just like you feel like you're going to battle. Like it's crazy. I don't know how to describe it. It, it stirs your soul from within inside. And what's really interesting, some of the men who were partaking in that liquor, some of them, now that Chechen is in peace and everything, some of them were actually veterans of the first Chechen war. So to be had to have the privilege and honor of doing liquor with these people who had actually been in battle was it, I, I, it was like one of the best privileges I've ever had in my life. I mean, this sounds so intense. And I mean, when I think about dhikr, I suppose probably just because of the experiences that I've had and, you know, remembering God, it's it's a very calming, very soothing um, experience. You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran that only, only by the remembrance of God does the heart find peace. But it's so interesting when you're, they're remembering God going into war so i suppose maybe that was also their um you know their source of strength and the source of that bravery and chivalry did you did you feel peaceful even though the the outwardly it looks like a very hectic um sort of uh, yeah <laughs> you know what i mean it does it does it, 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 it i don't know how it, it, it sort of like shakes your soul but in a really beautiful profound way so i i felt you know like you do feel at peace in a very weird way, I don't know how to describe it. You have to, you have to experience it to believe it. To be honest, I mean, it's it's just so incredible how Vicar holds communities together. Like, um, a, we've had an episode from South Africa where we spoke about the spe- the, the special Vicar that that you know that grew up, uh, that grew up. Yes, yes, and it's so incredible. And I mean, that also, um, you know, that it, it also formulated during a time when Muslims were under unimaginable oppression in in South Africa and at the same time I also think about how ingenious even the Naqshbandi dhikr is that you know that happened in, in, in the region where the Soviets were 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 in charge because essentially they can't really spy on they can't really spy on the Muslims yeah. because what 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 are they going to prove that it's just a bunch of men yeah. sitting together and you know being silent and I just think it's just so incredible how our deen has this um way of being creative yeah. we don't need to be you know we don't need to shout for for you know oh we need we need to fix this or we need to do that there's always yeah. a way for you to connect to allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in in the um in 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 the situation that that you're in 
Definitely. And uh, I I mean, I, I was going to say, I was going to ask, I mean, this place just sounds, you know, so incredible. And and w- w- the more I hear about it, as in the more I want to know about the culture. And and I just think it's so yeah. important to learn about this place, especially because like even in recent times, you have the whole controversy with, you know, the, the you know, the, the Sochi Olympics and, you know, the, the graves that mm. idioms are purportedly built, being built on and then you well, had the Circassian people yeah. yeah and then you had that whole you know the war well not sorry not the war <laughs> the MMA fight um, you know with Khabib and, yeah. and Connor and the, you know the, the, the remarks um, against Khabib that oh you know your people surrendered mm. to the Russians and when, when the match was over I, I saw um, you know on social media the, the reactions of, of, of these people and you know the way they were celebrating this, this victory was more than just a sporting event for them, and I, I, I realized the, they're so passionate, mashallah, about about their history and their culture. So I, I just want to know more about their culture. Like, what's what is it about it, the, the culture of of this region? Because it's so diverse and it's so rich. What yeah. stands out? Like, what, what is it that you can pinpoint and say this is their culture from your like experience with with the region? Of course, like there's many sort of. There's many different peoples, but I think because a lot of them are Highlanders, so they have these codes of honor and masculinity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that really sets them apart. They inc- even in Russia, the Caucasus, you know, like they know that they can never a Chechen, even in the height of racism, like that went on during the Chechen wars, he would walk. You know, like they're known to be very proud people who know walk with his chest high in the middle of Russian gangster land. And challenge all the biggest gangsters to a fight. They're like they're that sort of, you know. They and even the Chechen mafia used to run Moscow till very recently. So the Chechens are known as fearless and crazy. Like, and even amongst Russians, they're known that they, they, they terrify Russians. Like, it's, th- it's it's crazy. I think there's this book by um, is it Dostoevsky where he talks about the the Gulag and he says that the only people whom the sort of Soviet guards were afraid of were the Chechens. Oh, so, so, yeah. yeah, I mean... Because, like, they don't have this thing of submission. They don't submit to authority, you know. The Chechens, like, they're, they're defiant. So, I mean, tell us about tell us about your trip then. I really want to know about the details, the specifics of your trip. Where did you go? When did you go? Yeah. How long? You know, just let us know and mm. tell us about your expectations as well. Like, were they, were they met? What were you expecting? Definitely. Yeah. So it's just like, so I went in April 2019 and um, all I had to do was to get a Russian visa because there was no advice about how to go there. Like it's very hard to find. Um, So I just, I went to the Russian National Tourist Office. They said just, yeah, I told them straight up, I'm going to Grozny. So, okay, fine, no problem. Part of Russian Federation. (laughs) And then I got my visa and that was literally it. Um, Then because... The thing is, because I think I might be in a bit more of a fortunate position. Mm-hmm. So I have friends who have both studied in the UK and in Syria, who have been my long-term friends, Chechen friends for the last 20 years. So I already had a sort of a bit of a window into the culture and a, and a foot in. So when I was going through the airport, so you go through one layer of like federal officers, Russian federal officers, then Chechen police. So even the questioning that I had was very minimal because... I had a contact on the ground who could smooth things for me. So if anyone wants to go to Chechnya, I'm saying to all of you, have a tour guide. Because for the last five years, they've been allowing tourists and everything's been safe. But they still, because it's crawling with Russian military or local police and stuff like that, you don't want to be stopped and it's kind of subject to interrogations and stuff. 
Go with the tall guy. How is the language, um, the language uh, barrier like? I would say learn some Russian because oh. luckily I had friends who could speak English or Arabic. So I was relatively okay. But the days when I traveled, so there was one particular when I traveled by myself, went to a different republic for a day trip, came back into Chechnya. And I almost got thrown into a prison cell because uh, for the night because the guys were trying, they pulled me off the bus. They'll say, what are you doing here and stuff? But then luckily a week before I had been at, the sort of Chechen vicar with one of the president's advisors randomly, completely randomly. Uh-huh. So I showed them footage of the vicar and they were like, they, they, they had been interrogating me over Google Translate. What are you doing here? Do you have a bomb in your bag? And I just type back, no, whatever. And because I'd showed them that I'd met, I'd known some of the imams. They knew the imam that I knew. They also knew the president's advisor. So I was kind of let go. So yeah, have have people on the ground because it could very easily be cultural misunderstanding. Your lack of no lack lack of knowing, not knowing any Russian or everything, it could get you into trouble. Right, and you said you so, you said you um, landed in Grozny. Grozny. So you how to fly to Grozny? You fly to um, you can fly you can fly through Istanbul or for Moscow. Right. I mean, if, so it's actually very easy to get to. Even Grozny. I mean, the name itself. I mean, do you know what it means? Yes, it means terrible because it was Yermolov built that um, uh, he built that fortress, and I mean, Graznaya in Russian means the terrible. And Chechens like they don't really like using it, so they call it Sholja. What does that mean? Do you, do you know? That I don't know what it means, but but that is the traditional name. Uh, that is the tra- Sholja color, like the fortress of Sholja on on the. Um, so I'm not sure of the meaning, but that's the original name. So tell us about your expectations, though, going in. Like, what, what were your expectations? As in, were they met? Were you surprised when you were there by anything you witnessed? Yes. Or? So I will say that I I knew already that Chechen, my expectations, that they were very masculine. That there's very macho culture and a culture full of wrestling, horse riding. And that was met, actually, because funnily enough, a lot of the, the brothers, the group of brothers, they took me horse riding. Huh. And well, yeah, so we went horse riding. They love their wrestling. So all that kind of like masculine element of the culture all fulfilled my expectations. And even because I knew that I've interacted with, um, you know, Chechen women before, and I knew I had the expectation was I knew that they were very, uh, they had like a lot of chivalry towards their women as well. So that all that expectation was fulfilled because I already knew. But perhaps one, one, I'll tell you a really interesting expectation a bit of a disappointment, actually, I'd say, because I thought all of Chechnya was mountainous, right? But then when you go to Chechnya, you realize that all the cities are on the plains. It's all flat. Oh. So I think that was, yeah. So you have to go to the south towards the border of Georgia to start getting mountains and everything. Because during, um, like, Stalin's deportations and everything, a lot of people, when they came back, a lot of them started coming and living in the urban centers to get work and jobs and stuff like that. Oh, I see. Uh, That I didn't really know, I suppose. Oh, I see, I see. And, like, tell us about, I mean, we've we've spoken about this, you know, like, this culture and, you know, the culture of the region throughout the episode. Tell us about, like, tell us about potential visitors like myself probably what are the cultural do's and don'ts so like because i don't want to offend anybody over there it sounds so like what what are the cultural do's first okay so cultural do's if you're into sort of like athletics or martial arts or wrestling embrace it because the chechens will love you Mm -hmm. 
even if they throw you down and leave you in a wrestling match, they'll love that you try. <laughs> so for me, as I've always loved wrestling Chechens and Dagestanis, I, I, get, I get absolutely battered, but they respect me because I tried. So I'd say that. Take an interest in their culture. Respect their elders. I, I cannot emphasize this more. I cannot emphasize this more. Like, honestly, when their elders come in the room, do what they do. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. So stand up when the elders come. Kiss their hands. Get presents for them. You know, like, take an interest. Because a lot of Chechens, this generation, a lot of them survived the sort of deport Stalin's deportations. And they're always willing to share their stories um, so sit with them, with their elders, and listen to their stories of how they overcame their suffering and stuff like that. And also, it gets a lot of respect from your Chechen friends that you know you take an interest in their elders. It endears you more to them, right? And so w- definitely do that. What are the what are the things that you would recommend us not to make the mistake of doing? Okay, because Chechnya's got what's the word turbulent politics, just to, to say the least. Uh-huh. Don't make comments about the regime don't make comments about what you just keep the politics to the minimum because you could you know like then by people might think you're a journalist you're coming to spy on them or whatever right so and i noticed that when i got stopped by the police and almost got thrown into a cell they probably thought i was a spy or something right i mean Uh, it just it just it uh, just so happens that you you do happen to be a journalist so that must have been really risky for you I suppose, yeah. but like I wasn't writing anything against them, so right. Um, so just be careful. Just don't if because you you do hear a lot of things that Chechnya is. Well, we won't go into that, but like what Chechnya, that like people say it's a human rights black hole and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Don't go there and poke your nose because if you're traveling, if you're going as a tourist, because you're not going to like the reaction the authorities will give you. That's one. Two, um, I would say especially if you're a guy, right. And especially, they're very protective of their women. So do not, do not sort of like, do not look at them in a lustful way. Be incredibly respectful. Um, and also, for if you're asking another Chechen man about his family, just say, how's your family? Don't ask, how are your wife and kids? Especially if you're just getting to know them, because it's considered incredibly offensive. Right. All right, okay. I mean, um, Salahuddin, this has been such an eye-opening and incredible episode. And I mean, we I really like, you know, s- speaking to you about like, you know, tr- your travels and just generally, I, I think everybody should check out Salahuddin's um, Instagram page. And I mean, it's going to be in the show notes. Salahuddin, it's been a pleasure. Oh, likewise, likewise. Take care. Take care. Salam alaikum. Salam. Salam to you and salam to all the listeners. Thanks for listening. Key details we mentioned are found in our show notes. Find us on social media as Sacred Footsteps and on Twitter as S Footsteps.